Uh, we are here tonight to worship Jesus Christ. And I'd like to thank all of you for coming out. It's uh, great to see some people we haven't seen in a while. I'd like to welcome all of you here to Cross Point Church. Uh, it occurred to me while we were worshiping, uh, for some reason, that uh, this will be our last Christmas Eve service here in this auditorium. I, at least I really hope it is. Uh, we're about a few weeks away from moving to our new location on 110th in Oklahoma in West Dallas. We're really excited about that. Um, we do have a lot more work to do, but um, Lord willing, we'll get there pretty soon. Um, so I just wanted to say it's just really good to see all of you here tonight. And uh, it, it truly, if, if you don't leave here tonight with more gratitude and love for Jesus, then something's Something went wrong, either on your end or ours. <laughs> uh, but that's why we're here. We're here to worship Jesus tonight and everything that uh, he came to represent and what he did, what he actually said and did. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point Church. And I've got to tell you, I feel a little underdressed <laughs> tonight when I look around the room. In fact, one of the ushers, when I walked in, and I didn't appreciate this, uh, looked at me, and he's like, are you preaching? Tonight? I was like, yes, is there a problem? As if this is inappropriate, preaching attire. I mean, you know, what matters is that I'm comfortable. And this makes me comfortable wearing this. This is who I am, okay? If you don't like it, too bad. You know, I mean, it's warm in here anyway. I'm wearing a t-shirt. I'm comfortable. This is, I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. This is what I would wear around the house. And so I chose to wear it here tonight. Actually, the reason I'm wearing this particular shirt is because I wanted to talk to you for a minute about Christmas movies. Um, how many of you like Christmas movies? Most of you. Uh, how many of you are going to go home tonight and watch a Christmas movie later on? All right. Yeah, our family's probably going to do that. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be watching my favorite Christmas movie. Oh, I'm sorry. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Fun for the whole family. Um, a couple of years ago, my son, who's never seen the movie, just said, yeah. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, Time Magazine published an article called 11 Movies You Didn't Know Were Christmas Movies. And I remember, I saw the article and most of the movies I didn't know were Christmas movies. The number one movie that we didn't know was a Christmas movie was Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. I was really excited to find out that was a Christmas movie because it gives me an excuse to watch Die Hard every year. Um, now, the reason, the reason I bring that up is because there are actually quite a few Bible passages that you probably didn't know were Christmas passages. And in fact, the passage we're going to look at tonight doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' birth, but it's a Christmas passage. It goes a lot deeper than Jesus' actual birth. And I'd like you to take a look at uh, with me at what may be the greatest Christmas text in the Bible. It's found in the, in the book of John. The book of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. That's what we're going to read uh, to get us started tonight. And here's how it reads in the ESV. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Apostle John isn't interested in telling us about the shepherds who were out in the fields feeding their flocks at night. He isn't interested in telling us about all the angels who were busy appearing to people and shocking them with birth announcements the night Jesus was born. He isn't interested in telling us about Jesus' parents at all. He isn't interested in telling us about the manger or that Mary was a virgin. And it's not that all those details aren't important. It's not even that John isn't interested in getting into details. All throughout the Gospel of John, we come across seemingly irrelevant details. That's not the issue at all. It's just that here in the beginning of his account of Jesus' life, the Apostle John wants to make sure that we get the point of Jesus' birth. So he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't bog his story down with all kinds of interesting details about the birth of Jesus. He summarizes the way Jesus came into the world with one incredible phrase. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That one phrase says more about God and it says more about you than probably any other phrase we've ever heard. And I'd like to try to wrap our, help, wrap our minds around that tonight. The first thing that we need to know about this phrase in particular is what the word is or or who the word is. That name, the word, means God's revelation or God's self-expression or almost like God's personality or God's speech. That's what it signifies. The phrase has been used in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it takes on a new kind of meaning, especially in the Gospel of John. In other words... The Word represents how God talks to us. This is how God expresses Himself to us. This is how God shows Himself to us through the Word. And it could also mean the reason or the reason for life. This Word is the reason for life. And we know from what John says in the rest of chapter 1 that the Word is Jesus, the, the man Jesus. Jesus is the reason for life. Jesus is God's self expression. Jesus shows us what God is really like. Jesus himself said this about, about himself many times. He said, whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. He came here to show us what God is really like. Because in ancient times, and certainly today, people are living with all kinds of confusion about who God, is, who God really is and how he really feels about us and, and what God is really like. There's all kinds of ideas about that. But only in Jesus do we find out the truth. The absolute truth about who God is and who he will always be. And actually who he always was. So, in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes something similar. He says, for in him, that's Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All things were created by him and for him, that's Jesus And in Jesus, all things hold together. 
And John is saying something similar in the opening part of his gospel. He's saying that this man, Jesus, was with Father God before the creation of the world. He is uncreated. He simply is. And even though he was born of a woman and adopted by his father, he has existed eternally as God the Son. Listen to what John says. After, after he says the word became flesh, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Or more literally, the word became flesh and set up his tent among us, or tabernacled among us. Or how about the way the message renders this, uh, this verse? In the message we read, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I think that is a great rendering of what John originally wrote. And this phrase points us all the way back to the days of the tabernacle. In ancient Israel, when they constructed the tabernacle, when they were in the wilderness, and they wanted to experience the presence of God, and God wanted to be among his people, and, and the solution to that was the tabernacle, or this temporary tent where God could dwell. And no one could even go near the presence of God. The, the tabernacle was where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. His presence filled the tabernacle, and when God, God's presence filled the tabernacle, nobody could go near it. And nobody could ever go near it unless they brought a blood sacrifice to pay for their sins because God is holy. And all of that, of course, points us back to Genesis, which tells us that in the beginning, before anything existed, God created the universe and everything was good. Everything God created was good. There was no sin in the world. There was no sadness. There was no pain. Nothing was wrong. God and people enjoyed a healthy, unbroken relationship with one another, a kind of pure intimacy. In fact, the narrator who wrote Genesis pictures this, this kind of uh, relating to God as Adam and Eve being naked in the presence of God with no shame. No shame at all. That's how it was meant to be. And then, of course, Adam and Eve decided that they didn't need God to be happy. They believed a lie from the devil. And they rebelled against God. And God's response was to banish them from the Garden of Eden into what we might call the real world. The real world outside of Eden, outside of God's paradise. And to them, the real world was the land east of Eden. And it was a land of hard ground and a land of thorns, a land of pain and difficulty and conflict, a land of disappointment, a land of suffering. The real world, my friends, is where we live now. It hasn't changed. We live in the real world today. In the real world, everyone loses everyone they love. It's going to happen. In the real world, you can't hang on to what is good. You can try. You can cling to what is good. But it won't last. It all gets taken away from you. All of life ends in death. The real world is cursed. And between God and people, or the real world and Eden, there was placed a flaming sword. And the idea was that if Adam and Eve, you know, even if they wanted to go back into God's presence, they would have to go through this flaming sword. They'd have to face justice. And of course they couldn't. They couldn't. Because the sword would have consumed them. So the sword, the sword stood there. At the entrance to the, to the Garden of Eden, along with the cherubim, and these weren't Christmas angels, 
These were guardian angels guarding the presence of God, keeping people away from God. You know, I had a conversation with my kids this last week, you know, about angels and what they actually look like. Because Christmas angels look very nice and pleasant and halos above the head. I don't know where that came from. It's not, there's no evidence that they have halos over their heads. They are fearsome creatures. And any time they reveal themselves to people, the first thing they say, just about every time, is don't be afraid. Because they frighten people. Because of their power and their essence. And the cherubim stood at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword which turned in every direction to make sure that people would not be able to get back into the presence of God. So sin against God resulted in this barrier. So what does the word became flesh mean? What does it have to do with this? What does the word became flesh mean when we're talking about Genesis Here's what it means. It means that because God knew that we could never get back into the garden or back into his presence, no matter how hard we tried, God left the garden. God left his paradise. God went through the sword. He knew we could never get back into his presence, so he came to us. God came to the real world. God moved into our neighborhood And honestly, Jews who are hearing this for the first time when John wrote it, they would have been shocked by this statement because to a Jew, God was unviewable and unapproachable and untouchable. I mean, this is the same God who could only be accessed one day a year on the Day of Atonement by one person, the high priest, in one room. The inner sanctuary of the temple or the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And they had to tie a rope around his ankle in case he wasn't pure. And the reason they had to do that, because if you touch God's stuff, you die. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you die. If you even look at God, you die. If you lie to God, you die. This is the see me and die God we're talking about. And John says that this God became a person. He took on flesh and blood and he lived among us. He lived around he he lived among all kinds of people. He went to all kinds of people. No matter what kind of life they were living, and people saw him and touched him and he forever changed the way we think about and relate to God our Father. You see all along since the beginning, people have thought that the way to experience God and the way to get in the presence of God is to become more like God. We need to become more like Him. Many people operate under the mindset that the good people are in and the bad people are out. The good people get to be with God, and in the end, the bad people will all be away from God. Or maybe you're living in some kind of system that says, be like us and we'll accept you. Don't humans operate that way? Well, don't we normally think that way? If you be like us, we'll accept you. Listen, God does not operate that way. The reason that we hang on to wrong ideas about God and the reason that we struggle to experience God's presence in our life is sin. Sin is the problem. Sin causes us to treat God as something he's not. Sin causes us to think thoughts about God that are not true of God. Sin deceives us. Sin causes us to relate to God not as our good father, 
but instead as some impersonal, distant force who must be appeased, or a mystical power that we can only hope to negotiate with. Or maybe God to you is just like a bright light that we can never get close to, because if we got too close or even looked at it too long, we would be annihilated. Without the Word becoming flesh, without God becoming a person, taking on a body just like you have and I. We would be just like lost children who are afraid that when our dad finds us, he will lash out at us. Have you ever felt that way? Do you know what it's like to be lost and to know that when you get found, you're going to face the music? You're going to face trouble, consequences, punishment. We have all related to God that way, haven't we? Think about it. Many people are trying to keep God at a distance because they know they're not worthy of his presence. Or maybe they're just afraid of what might happen to them if they ever got into God's presence. Think about the prodigal son. One of the, probably the most famous parable Jesus ever told. When he was a young man, he took his inheritance. He left his father behind. He went out to a faraway country. He lived however he wanted to. He wasted everything. And when he finally came to his senses and he realized that life with his father was better than the life he had, he decided to go home. But he wasn't really excited about it. And we know that because when he returned home, his father runs out to him. And he embraces him and begins kissing him. And it's almost like the son doesn't understand what's happening. He doesn't understand what his father's really like. And so he stops his father. And instead he says, Father, I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy of being called your son. Just let me live like a hired servant. Just let me earn my keep. And the father will have none of it. It doesn't work that way. It's not about what you deserve. It's like God is saying to us, I'm ready to give you everything just because I want to. I'm ready to give you all my best stuff just because of who I am. That parable is about God. Can you imagine telling your kids, hey, uh, would you stop calling me dad? Just stop calling me dad. Let's instead, let's do this. Let's make a contract. If you behave a certain way, and obey all my rules and honor my values, I'll treat you with respect and I'll feed you and I'll put a roof over your head. But as soon as you violate the contract, you're out of here. Sign right there. Can you imagine any good parent saying that to their child? No good parent could ever say that to their child. You know why? Because it's not in their heart. That's not what's in their heart. All they have for their child in their heart is love, unconditional, grace, unending. And so they show their kids grace. And Jesus came to show us that God is better than any father we've ever known. That's what Christmas is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so shockingly opposite of everything we used to believe about God. The word became flesh means that God did not wait for us to change first. He didn't wait for us to become godly. He didn't wait for us to become honorable. He doesn't wait for people to get right with him, or to clean their life up before he welcomes them into his presence. God doesn't wait for us to become like him before he will give us his best stuff. 
Instead, God became like us. The Word became flesh. God took a body. God became weak. God became ordinary. God experienced hunger and thirst like we do. God experienced loneliness and pain and suffering like we do. God experienced temptation and vulnerability. God experienced stress and anxiety. God experienced the full range of human emotion. And yet he was without sin. The Word became flesh. And he didn't stop being the Word. It's a mystery to us. But it's the best news we've ever heard. And right before John writes this awesome phrase, he wrote this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which means that we are God's beloved children just by grace through faith, just because we receive Jesus. Just because we believe he's alive and that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he was going to do, which is to pay for our sin and give us peace with God. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't have to will our way into God's presence. We don't have to change first. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to invent or worry about some imaginary existence or place where we will go when we die so that all of our sin and all of our junk and all of our guilt and shame can be punished or burned off until we are worthy to be in God's presence. That's not good news. The good news is that God has come into our presence. Jesus, the eternal light, pierced the darkness. The Word became flesh. Have you received Him? Have you received Jesus? You know, when you talk with people about Jesus, you might hear something like this. I don't really know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know what if he was God. I don't know if he was born of a virgin or if that's even important. I don't know if he rose from the dead. And I really don't care because I don't think doctrine is all that important. I think what matters to God is how you live your life. Have, have you heard that before? Maybe, maybe you feel that way. Maybe some of you have said that or thought that. But I have news for you today. That's doctrine. <laughs> Everything that I just said is doctrine. It's called the doctrine of self-justification or salvation by works. And it says this, as long as I live a good life, God will accept me. It assumes that you aren't so bad that you need a Savior to die for you and that you aren't so weak that you can't turn your life around and make yourself right with God. And it also says that God isn't so holy that he would reject you because of your sin. It says all of that. I mean... Basically, I just told you if, you, if you think that what you believe isn't as important as how you live, that's promoting a whole set of doctrines about God and people and sin. And here's the problem with all of that. I mean, the truth is, what we believe determines how we live. Isn't that the truth? The truth is that when we believe that we can somehow get ourselves into the presence of God, all we do is grow tired. We just grow tired and weary and less and less certain of ourselves. And we're really not sure how God feels about us, are we? We don't have assurance with that kind of mindset. I mean, as much as we try, there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. You'll always wonder, have I done enough? Am I good enough? 
It's exhausting. And it's not what you were made for. And even if you could convince yourself that you're worthy of God's presence, you'll only look down on everyone who doesn't have the life you have. Because that's what we do. That's what people do. The reason for life is Jesus, remember? He's the reason for life, not you. He holds the universe together, not you. When you throw your life on Jesus, when you stop depending on yourself and you embrace Jesus and love Jesus, you are given a precious gift. Joy and peace and rest. God became flesh. And the central question of Christianity is not, how can I be a better person? Or or what can I do differently to get in the presence of God? That's not the central question of the Bible. The central question is this. How can God justify sinners? That's the question. The question is, how can a holy God declare me righteous? How? The Word became flesh. That's the answer. I mean, the Word became flesh to me. It means that even though I have sinned, even though I sin every day and I fall short of God's holiness, I believe in Jesus. I put my faith and trust in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And because of that, by sheer grace, God looks at me and he sees past my sin and he sees Jesus Christ dwelling in me. And he looks at me and treats me as a son. And in the end, my verdict will be not guilty. Because I've tried hard? No. Because I've lived a great life? No. It's because of Christ. It's because of sheer grace. It's only because of the cross. Only because of the blood that Jesus shed. Blood that he shed for sinners. For people who were not like him. And who could never be. The word became flesh. He became like us. Jesus was judged instead of me on the cross. And I'm a child of God. That's what Christmas is about. So wherever you are tonight, whatever you feel about God, if you're feeling guilty, if you feel guilt in your heart in the presence of God, there's something missing. There's something missing in the way you're relating to God. If you feel ashamed in the presence of God or in the presence of other people, there's something not right with your relationship with God. If you can't get past the things you've done in your past, if your past looms over you like a shadow, And you're worried about what God is going to say to you after you die and you are in his presence. Something is missing. You're not seeing Jesus for who he is, my friends. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the light. He is the word. He's the word become flesh. He took our place. He's our substitute. He was punished. For your sins, so that you can pass through judgment into life with God, eternal life with God. Listen, I know it's Christmas Eve, and you all have lots of things to do tonight. I'm sure you do, and and, and my family has things to do too, but this is more important. I just want to tell you if your heart is heavy with guilt or shame or doubt, I invite you to talk to me before you leave tonight. I would love to talk with you. 
and tell you about how you can have peace with God. That's why we're here. We're here because Jesus gives us peace with God, something we could never have on our own. He gives us hope for the future. He gives us assurance. He is our life. And we're here to worship him tonight. And I would love to see you become a worshiper of Jesus. I would love to talk with you. Or just leave me your phone number or email. I'd love to talk with you when you have time. Please don't leave here tonight feeling lost or confused in the presence of God. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus that we can speak to you and know you and be in your presence. We thank you for the grace that you have showered on us because of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. I thank you for every person here tonight. Everyone here tonight is precious to you, God. You've created all of us in your image to be worshipers of you, God, and to know you in a relationship. And I pray that you would remove whatever barrier stands between you and anyone here so that they can see you for who you really are and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.